Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and being grateful for ceiling fan technology. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. It's cool when you see a squirrel, you're supposed to chase it. That's what I've heard. Uh, today on the show, we're talking with Adolfe Anaheim, Executive Director and Principal Data Architect at J.P. Morgan Chase. Thank you for joining us today. Yay, Adolfe. Hello. Um, hello. Okay, so we're going to jump right in. And uh, what we want to ask you about is um, your background. How did you end up as an Executive Director at a uh, big name brand that we've all heard of? And, um, you know, assume you weren't born that way. So, so back all the way up, tell us how your leadership <laughs> oh, journey wow. formed as comfortable as you're, you're, you're willing to share. Sure. So I've uh, worked in data for about 25 years. Um, I've only ever worked in data. I started my career um, at, well, since my career, my education um, was back in the nineties. Um, you know, square haircuts were still cool. And, what do you mean? Um, They're still cool now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I went to a, a tiny university uh, in Pontypridd in Wales. Uh, and they were still teaching uh, COBOL and SSADM, which I hate yeah. so much. So at first I was like, oh, I hate data. I think I got a C in data. I hated it. It was awful. And then I, I audited this class on Visual Basic and the lecturer was so passionate you know, about uh, good interface design, good data, and systems thinking and design thinking before they were cool. And I thought to myself, okay, this is amazing. I need to do this. So I, I kind of switched gears and I got my first uh, internship doing, or we call it a year out here, not internship, mm -hmm. uh, doing um, doing data stuff. I was working on Access 95 databases for a um, rubber chemicals company. I remember I uh, spent most of the year wearing really awful uniform uh, that I had to tuck in. So I felt like, yeah, this is not the fashion fashion look that I want to take forward. And also having every time I walked outside, I'd be like, oh, I just hope the chemical alarm doesn't go off. Because if it does, you have to book it for the closest uh, uh, sh uh, shelter. And I, I, I've never been one to run very fast. I'm built for comfort, not for speed. So I Same. always think to myself, what's, how far, how far away from the nearest chemical shelter am I? Uh, that would be my, my thing. So many years and I did many data roles. Um, I worked as a SQL DBA. I did Microsoft, um, you know, full stack Microsoft analytics and Microsoft SQL Server. Um, I was a BI was there, developer. Was there Access back then? I mean, were yeah, you Microsoft were you ever Access. dealing yeah, with Microsoft Access? Yeah, Microsoft Access ninety five was my first, the first thing I used, and then Microsoft Access ninety seven, and then I migrated okay. to SQL, and I didn't look back. I worked on Microsoft Dynamics, basically yep. any Microsoft uh, sort of data related thing. Uh, you know. I was I was up for it. I was you know really interested in learning. Um, so I, I considered my career like two halves, and th that half was what I call my practitioner phase, and I did that for f about fifteen years. And then I I ended up as a strategic um, data architect, and I thought, why are people still not delighted with their data? You know, I've 
done everything I can think of. People still hate the report. Because it's <laughs> filthy. <laughs> the data is <laughs> filthy. People hate it. So I thought, I need, I need to know more. So I went back to university. I did a master's in business intelligence at Leeds Beckett University, um, which was amazing. It was a year out. I just could just do you know nothing but study. And I used to have these terrifying stacks of books in the library. Myself and a friend of mine would always be kind of competing to see who could get the books out because you know it was still books out back in 2013 it was still you go to the mm -hmm. library you get the book there's none of this electronic book nonsense and yep. um <laughs> yeah so we <laughs> it was great I loved it and when I got out of university um a friend of mine said hey so there's this startup consultancy working on data standards and I thought oh that's interesting and a few conversations later, I found myself working for a consultancy that was working for the World Bank, developing data standards. And that was really the start of my second half of my career. Um, and I, I kept working on data standards, data strategy and data governance. Um, I took in a role in government. I was head of data for effective development at the Department for International Development. And then when it merged uh, with the, at the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and while I was there, apparently I sent a tweet and the tweet was seen by some woman who shared it with the managing director at JP Morgan and they got in touch with me and that was how Ooh. I got my role. So that's how I ended up I here. I was going to ask for all of these roles. So leading up to that yeah. uh, more strategic role, you were still in, in what we would call an undergraduate here in the United States and you were doing um, yeah, summer jobs yeah. and things yeah um, and then no, you took the year to my, leading up to my first year out so the internship I was doing a so the degree, degree program essentially was a two years of degree program a year out in industry then a year back finishing off your degree so I started I there then I went into work full-time and then uh 2013 I thought yeah I need to there's stuff I need to do so I did my master's at that point which uh, was okay, phenomenal okay. And how did you get oh. these roles that were, were in between? So you got this one via making an exciting tweet. Do you even remember what yeah. you said? No, I still don't know what that tweet is. I'm, I have to go find that tweet and thank that tweet. For oh, it might not even job. be there anymore. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, don't go there. doesn't seem like it. it is not a pleasant place. I think Mastodon. it's not called Twitter anymore, is it? It's not called Twitter anymore. No. So I have to remember to say my ex is no longer there, which is... <sighs> Yeah, Not that could be easily for, misconstrued. Yeah. For a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. Yes. Well, so yes. So yeah, I mean, Rachel, you're you're pressing on this a little bit. I mean, how what was that career progression like through that? I mean, were you were you getting promoted? Were they was it junior engineer to senior engineer to executive senior engineer? I mean, how do you end up as an executive in J.P. Morgan and Chase like uh, along the way here? Like like what 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 was all those? Mm -hmm. What do those look like? So when I back when I was a being a practitioner, we didn't even have data engineering. It wasn't even a career that existed back then, although mm -hmm. the, the roles are very similar. Uh, so I started off as a database developer. And then I essentially moved roles to do what I like to call data stations, you know, like stations in the kitchen. Um, I was very interested in learning the new next new thing. I've always been very interested in learning. So from being a database developer, I went on to be a SQL Server uh, DBA. I did some project management for a bit. Then I went on to be mm -hmm. an EI business intelligence developer again on Microsoft stack. Uh, from there, I went on to be a uh, strategic data architect and I went back to university and then coming out, I contracted for a little bit 
uh, in and out of contracting, really. And then my role as um, uh, co-director at Open Data Services, which is a workers' cooperative working with the World Bank, which is brilliant. And oh, then cool. what, what, there... What, what, what were you doing? So I guess... <laughs> Gosh, I, I have so many questions about this. Um, sure. I mean, people have problems in data. And one of the problems is there's too much of it and it's the wrong too much. Like people are collecting mm -hmm. the wrong things a lot of times and uh -huh. the things they actually want, they're not collecting. And when they are uh -huh. collecting the things they want, they're not organizing it in a way that makes sense. And so they can't uh -huh. get the data out when they want it. I mean, uh -huh. how much of the problems you're solving at the World Bank, and maybe I don't want to know this, but fall into one of those four categories? Uh, or like, like, what does it actually <laughs> look like, yeah, to be in this industry um, doing data? When I was a practitioner, most of the problems I was looking at is, I don't trust this uh, thing. I don't trust this number. I don't trust this um, category or, um, you know, all the things you mentioned. So those are day-to-day -day problems that I was trying to deal with, but they were still not being dealt with, right? People were still saying, no, I hate it. The report's wrong. And then running their own reports, right? And having these shadow data reporting things. And it was a nightmare. And I kept trying to work out why is this happening, right? I read Enchantment by Guy Kawasaki, I think. And I was like, huh. Customers could be delighted with data. I've never seen anyone come to me and say, I'm delighted with that report, right? Never. I've never seen anyone <laughs> say that. So what's going on? And that's where I wanted to go back to university and really understand. I mean, I, I started it during the, uh, the strategic data architect role, because at that point, I had done something which I'm never going to do again, and I do not recommend anyone does this. But at the time, I had nothing to lose. Uh, so I was Ooh, working at spicy. a company, at a company, and they had uh, 17 different copies. Of, so every time they created an application, they created a customer database. But they didn't have any standards. So the customer database, one would have 50 characters for the name. The other one would have 100 characters for the name. That meant that when you move data around, you if someone had a long name, which not yeah, everyone in the West, it, yeah. yeah, we were having all sorts of problems. Uh, formats just basically didn't talk to each other. People collecting information in one place, in one application, didn't have a home for it in the other application, so we just threw it away. Uh, and it meant that creating reports was just a nightmare. It also meant that the customer journey, so the first thing I learned in, in, in that role is nobody cares unless you can kind of show that against something that the organization cares about, in this case, the customer journey. So what I did was I, I showed um, how it impacts the customer journey, the fracturing impacts the customer journey. Uh, if you went onto the website, then you try to come onto the phone, you have to wait till the next day for the databases to be copied across, to be replicated, and then hope mm -hmm. you've not lost anything. And then, you know, it was just a mess. Or you'd end up with someone came on onto the phone because they couldn't work out what to happen, what was happening on the web. And then they started a new account for them. And we had all these things about how mm. a customer can only have one account, which I proved with a very short SQL, SQL statement that wasn't true. It was just a mess. We couldn't, we didn't have a yeah. customer-centric view of the world. It was really a process-centric view of the world, the processes mm. of the organization. So I tried my best to get some investment in this and nobody wanted to invest in it. It was always like, oh, it's too much, going to be too expensive to try and bring together some standards for these different applications. They didn't want to change one of them because it was pretty old and there was only one person who knew how, they, how it worked. So I had this board because I'd been brought into the firm 
because I was female and they wanted someone to reduce the testosterone in the team, which I thought was hilarious because I was like, have Impossible. you met me? I thought I was very funny. <laughs> so anyway, I, I then got the job of being the social organizer, or organizer of uh. social events because that's women's work. So I got a uh, notice board. I, it, no, it worked out because I got a notice board to put all the social announcements. And every, once you walk through the office, you walk past this notice board, right? It was quite prominent. So I put, I made a heat map of showing all the places and how much data they contained, just showing just the kind of the mess. Uh, Abby Covert is an information architect, one of my favorite uh, authors, because she wrote a book on how to make sense of any mess. So I, did, I hadn't read the book at the time, but I did something similar. And our CEO walked past that notice board one day and he goes, what on earth? And there were some bleeps. And he said, we need to fix this. And that's how I got a promotion. Well um, done. Would I do that today? No, because um, it's <laughs> you don't want to kind of, uh, what's that thing called? Um, you know, use up all your political capital and that kind of jape. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time it was, it was like, well, it, it I'm either doing, yeah, I'm doing this or I'm going back to university. So either way, it doesn't really make any difference. I did end up going back to university, but not until I cleaned up that mess. I was so happy. Uh, and three years later, they actually wrote to me and said, hey, do you still have that heat map? I was like, <laughs> no, no, gotta make <laughs> no, your that own. Would be, that would be wrong. And that would be theft. Um, mm -hmm. So no, I didn't yeah. have the heat map, but it was Maybe impactful. Was... Okay. So I have I have questions. This is this is awesome, and I'm I also have a a, a, data, a background in data, so all of this is extremely familiar Ooh. to me. Um, so I would love to talk about it more, but I would like to also get on to. Uh, you, it sounds like maybe one of the first roles where you may have had some leadership re uh, requirements in your job is you said you were a project manager early on. Yeah. And even, even if you were, didn't have people reporting to you, typically those roles require you to influence other people. And I have to say that heat map, that's a great way of like passive influence with big impacts. I'm super impressed with that. Um, but yeah, so was that your first, the project manager role? Was that the first time you had to, to influence people outside of your immediate sphere? And how did that go? Yeah, and then can you talk the... about the next times you, you were put into leadership roles? I resisted leadership roles. I didn't really want. I thought they weren't fun. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> I don't want to be a leader. I want to do Wait, the job. You thought so. they were unfun? Have you have you changed your mind already? <laughs> no. Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> you I just have to, to do them them. them if you want to get shit done. That's basically yeah, it. That's right. um, so I'll tell you a little bit why I decided to step into leadership roles. But uh, yes, it was the first leadership role. I was um, probably 23 at the time and probably should not have been managing anyone. <laughs> Um, As most 23-year-olds, yeah. <laughs> yes, but it was either that or they would hire someone in to manage me. And I thought, well, I might as well, you know, do the role. So yeah. that was interesting because at that point, you kind of move from eating the sausage to owning the sausage factory. And owning the sausage factory is comes with a lot of things that are not as fun as eating sausage. Um, so I found myself... Few things are, really. Yeah. So I found myself thinking, wow, okay. So I decided to appreciate all of the variables that we need to take into account when making decisions. That was one of the things I learned. The other thing I had to learn was to stop complaining and actually start fixing things. So I used to moan mm -hmm. a lot. Oh, and same. it was someone else's responsibility. But I, mean, I was 23. I mean, to me, a good night out was going to Blackpool 
staying in a grotty B&B and going to, um, was it Reflex? Oh, I can't remember, 70s <laughs> style bar. You know, it was not a good time and I, I wore pleather trousers. So clearly, Ooh, sweaty. yes, <laughs> clearly I was not ready for responsibility at that age, but I did learn a lot. I learned that I didn't want to do it. So I bummed around doing more technical roles. So focusing on my technical ability. But yeah, the more I was looked looked into why are people not delighted with the data, the more I realized that the answer was higher up the food chain than where I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I kind of realized, so my the best boss I've ever had, his name is Alistair. And he sat me down. He said, you're a leader. People listen to you. And I go, why? <laughs> Why do people listen to you? You know stuff. <laughs> and he goes, You need to take that responsibility. You can't just, um, you can't just, com- you know, you need to think about what you're saying, how you yeah, say things. You can't just drop a bomb like, and then leave. Yeah. I was like, Okay, right. Okay. You need to think about this. Right. So that was, that was my first experience. And then, then after that, it was a case of um, having done this role at Open Data Services. Um, a friend of mine who was one of the Forbes for 30 under 30, um, she invited me to, you know, present instead of her at a, an event. Cool. And the the profile they created for me, I was like, I don't recognize who's this person. Um, <laughs> she sounds I, like she knows what she's doing. <laughs> no, I, who is this person? And then people come up to me and say how inspirational they found my journey and things and what I'd said, and I was like, oh oh, this is why people do leadership. And I kind of felt a responsibility at that point. There were not really many women, black women in in, in industry, um, not a lot of black women in data, in senior roles. At that point, I realized that I needed to take some some leadership responsibility. Yeah, and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't just for me. I was doing it really for other people. And yeah, leadership is not as fun as writing code, but few things are. So, um, you know, I could spend my life writing SQL statements and being dissatisfied with the fact that my customers are not satisfied or i could do something yeah. about it so this is this is me knobs from elsewhere right this is yeah. me doing something about i mean i still sometimes do sql very very rarely like once a year and i go yeah still got it but uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> it. yeah that's it maybe a bit of python just to feel good about myself and then then back mm-hmm. to um back to meeting real languages <laughs> so, well so you've told us a lot about the problems that you had to solve when you were in your practitioner days what are the problems mm. that you have to solve as a data leader like what are the issues i mean is it still the same kinds of things just like you said further up the food chain no. or is it uh the view is very different here the view is very different like when you think about it like being at the bottom of a mountain and you're seeing this cloud, right? This really black cloud, and you're thinking, oh, that's not good. Um, and you're thinking, what are those people up there thinking? <laughs> what are they thinking? Yeah. Why? This, this is, is awful. I'm this. familiar with this feeling. Uh-huh. <laughs> this if I were them, them I would do blah, blah, blah. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Context. Context is Always. what you need. So easy. And then you start to go up the food chain, go up the mountain, and you get near the top, and you're thinking, wow, this is super complicated. This guy owns a piece of this and he doesn't want anyone to change it. This guy's about to retire. He doesn't want to take any risks. This guy just doesn't like me, right? So I can't cut a path through his bit of land. And you're you're trying to bring all these people together. So what I realized when I went back to university, which is why it was such a fantastic time for me, was I, re- I, I learned how to disconnect data from technology. I'd always been taught data and technology were essentially 
they're saying, you know, data was part of technology. I don't know data is part of technology. That's what I always said. And I got to university and I was like, oh, I was learning about technology and how humans had evolved technology over time, how data evolved over time. And I was like, data has nothing to do with technology. It's enabled by technology, but it's not technology. And I also realized that people just thought data was numbers, which was extremely frustrating for me because when people say, can you show me the data? They mean, can you show me the numbers? So those mm. kind of pivotal realizations for me helped me to understand that the reasons that we had bad data were more about people than they were about technology. We've had the technology, so um, this is where I also discovered H.P. Lund. So H.P. Lund is the father of business intelligence, and he said, uh, I'm going to misquote him, um, that a business intelligence system, which was the paper he wrote in 1952, I think, um, he said, a business intelligence system gets the right information to the right people at the right time so that they can take the actions to support their organization. And I thought, bam, this is it. This is what I need. This is this is my career. This is what I want to do. <clears throat> and I realized that the reasons that we can't do that are human reasons, not technology reasons. We've had relational databases for years. There's new technologies that help us do more, but the fundamental conceptual understanding of how things fits together and why that number you're looking at, that piece of data you're looking at is wrong, is maybe it's wrong for you, <laughs> it's contextual, uh, maybe not wrong for everyone, but wrong for the purpose that you're thinking about. But because you're using this, you're overloading that word, you're thinking if I said, for example, um, run rate. Maybe run rate in one department is different from run rate in another department. And that's why when one department has a run rate, the other department goes, that's, that figure is wrong because they've not agreed what a run rate is. The definition, so, yeah. But it's less a data dictionary problem than a conceptual problem. So when I went to work on this uh, open data, open contracting uh, data standard, I realized something. I realized that the reason that we had struggled so much uh, in data, we would start in the technical level. So I started splitting data into three, the conceptual level, which is really about how we understand the ecosystem that we're in, right? This system that we're in, how do we understand it? How do things fit together? Forget the systems, forget the applications, rather forget the database systems. In the business or organization sense, how do these things fit together? And then from there, you could get a logical data model created. And from mm -hmm. there, you can have your data dictionaries, your physical data models, your permissions, and all those kinds of things you want to kind of attach. But without that conceptual agreement, not just understanding, agreement, you have to agree. When I say debt, I mean this. This and is what it, I mean. That yeah. This is what debt means. And this means debt for everyone. So imagine trying to create a system that allow every government in the world to disclose to their citizens what they spent their money on, everything from schools to mops to roads across the world. The fact that you don't have French people speaking the same French across the world is not even the first problem, right? Mm. What does a good procurement system look like? What are the stages of a procurement system? Oh, uh, this is making happening? my blood pressure go up just thinking about it. Like, <laughs> and, and, and so it's not to say, right? I say this, this a, a lot, the problem, problem is people. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a people problem. And then the first iteration of the standard was created before I turned up, which um, was really phenomenal work to even get those number of governments to agree on what procurement system the stages would look like was phenomenal. But having that conceptual understanding meant that we could then progress it. And then mm -hmm. you had to add flexibility because 
everyone's not the same. You can't have a one size fits all. So where it has gone wrong in the past had been we create this core, we create this massive monolith, right? And we say, probably in XML, and we say, this is a data standard. And people go, well, my stuff doesn't fit in here. What you need to think about is what is the core? What is essential? What is, you know, global? What must be done the same way everywhere? That's the core that can't change easily. But then how do I make it extensible, right? Make it easy for people to store the things that matter to them and make it easy that over time, a group of people can get together and say, okay, in Latin America, this is how procurement works. In the chem chemicals industry, this is how a process in health, this is how a procurement process works, right? So you could do those regional or um, other sorts of uh, verticals. Yeah, categorization. Yeah. yeah. You could create extensions for those specific use cases because it's like one hand clapping, right? You can't do much with data from one place on its own. You need to combine it to see what's really happening. If you want to understand what's happening in the world of procurement in government, you will need as many uh, government procurement tenders up to contract yeah. in data in the system. And if you have everyone going off piece, doing their own thing, or you have people putting in information that's wrong, you have a problem. So it's that you have to tread that fine line between the person publishing the data who knows what they intend for the data, well, hopefully, and the people using the data who want conformity. So the data users always want conformity because it makes your queries easy. The data yeah. publishers always want individuality because it makes yeah, precision expressing and... themselves. But I always yeah. say it's a bit like, and this is where I'm going to be slightly controversial. I do apologize in advance. Ooh. When I was in Manchester, I used to go to Arndale Center and areas around there, and they used to be goths all the time. Yes, but they always look kind of the same. And I used to think to myself, you're trying to dress to look different, but in reality, you all kind of end up with the same look. Mm -hmm. So that's what we wanted to do. Give them that sense of individuality over here by giving them extensions. Style guide. Uh, essentially, they're still all going to look, you're going to see them and go, yeah, that's a goth, right? You're going to look at them mm -hmm. and go, yeah, that's a goth kid. It doesn't matter that they have slightly different shade of lipstick. You know they're a goth because you know what a goth looks like. So that's how I kind of thought through that problem. And so we started working on version 2.0 or maybe one point something, I can't remember. But the next version was like, let's take the core, protect the core and give people the extensions and then do the work as the team developing the standard to say, hey, you've talked about this concept here. Have you gone to talk to that guy in Latin America? So then you're creating communities. Now what you have is a social technological artifact that everyone can hopefully agree on but there's still a lot of work there on the governance so what you're saying is is leadership and data boils down to convincing people to be more goth exactly. i just want to be clear that that's what i heard. okay exactly. no, so, that's exactly well, so, right. so, go ahead kendall <laughs> well I, I mean so i guess like like that's that's super interesting because you're talking about the and 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 your role is uh executive data director and principal data architect. So, so part of the problems that you solve are people problems, but part of the problems you solve are even the ways that people think about data. And in, in your goth analogy is that like, mm -hmm. hey, we need all of our data to both express something individual and uh -huh. be machine recognizable. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what's how much of your work as an executive director is that kind of thing 
versus the people, like just the normal people problems that every executive director in any role, even if it's not data related, is also dealing with. Like when, when I, if I asked you today, what's the biggest problem you're dealing with as a leader? Are you going to say that fucking jackass on my team three rows down? Or are you going to say- Pip, yeah. Yeah, or are you going to say I, the person wish, who keeps showing um, up in a hoodie, but it's pink instead of black? Like what's, what's no, the biggest I mean, problem you're- I'm an individual contributor, so I have an even bigger problem that I can't actually tell people what to do. I have to persuade them oh, what I think. So it's, that's it's hard. Really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting because um, you even if you work with other technologists and people think, oh, if you work in a technology organization, right, you'll be fine. It's not true because we all speak different languages, right? Software engineers don't, right? <laughs> Software engineers don't speak data language the way that, you know, I've seen some interesting SQL queries written by people who are software engineers who are great at what they do, come up to a data, a, a SQL relational database, they're writing code that makes you think, oh my God, you're going all the way. This is, I don't know if this will work for you, but I would say someone is going all the way to China to get to Manchester from Glasgow. That's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going yeah. way out of your way to get the same. Super inefficient. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So we're not speaking the same language. And similarly, I'm not speaking the language. So I, one of my biggest roles is to translator. I need to understand what does this mean to you? How do you understand it? And then I need to think about how I'm going to give you advice, right? So if someone comes to me and says, hey, so um, I want to create a, a data center in this particular country. Uh, I want to situate my, all my, of my data there. Help me to make sure this works and this is you know, lower the risk, et cetera. And I might say to them, okay, how? I might ask myself, how often does this person do this? You're not going to buy data centers every day. So anytime I'm doing any work with that person, I need to translate my language to as plain English as possible so that they can take their advice away. I can't just use whatever terminology I would use as a data person. Um, I would say, hey, so this is a data localization problem. You'll need to do this data residency. They'll be like, what? What? Yeah. <laughs> you know, this is something I want to do once. It's probably going to take a couple of years, but I'm going to do it once in probably my whole career, unless this is my specialization. They they have no idea. You're talking about data localization, data residency. You've got to define your terms. You've got to actually be very explicit about what it is you're saying. Because I've sat in many, many meetings in many, many organizations where people are talking and I'm like, I have no idea what you just said. What does that term mean? You just said an acronym. I have no idea what this acronym is. I'm the person that puts my hand up and go, I don't understand what you're saying. Because I've too many people will go to a meeting and go, yeah, kind of. I'm just 75%. I'm sure it's fine. And I'm like, no, I actually need to know because I need to connect the dots between this thing and that thing to know, you know, what's the risk? How, you know, what's the reward of doing this? Am I going to get fired if I say yes? To the <laughs> Mm -hmm. you know, is this like IBM? Is this like IBM? There's no wrong answer. Or are you duplicating something that someone else has done? You know, there's so many things there that if you don't speak the language, and that that's also business. You know, we like to say we're technical people, but business also have their own terminology. Heck, even artists. My wife was talking about some stitches. She's doing she's doing her exhibition stuff. Uh, she's doing these lace, massive lace projects, and just talking to someone about something, and I, I have no idea. I sat there for five minutes thinking, I have no idea what you just said. You could just be speaking. You could be speaking any language. I've, is this even English? What are you talking about? And that just shows you everyone's got their own jargon, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's super important. My biggest role is as a translator. I translate things. I yeah. take my expertise. My second biggest role is um, showing people the art of the possible. 
data as a conceptual thing has moved on so much because of technology. So this is where it comes back to technology nicely now. Technology enables us to do more with data now than we ever could um, mm -hmm. before, whether that's artificial intelligence or whether that is uh, because we have no SQL databases, we've got the cloud, whatever it is, we now have more abilities around data. So sometimes people who've never worked in the data field don't realize what the possibilities are. So I might be talking to someone and they might say, this is a complicated problem to handle in data. And I will say, if it's not more complicated than a 250 page mineral rights contract between Nigeria and this private firm that had to be digitized and created as data, then put in, in a contracting system, it's not that complicated. You know, people don't re recognize that we can actually do a lot more now. Mm -hmm. We don't have to create relational yeah. databases for everything. We don't have to create, you know, columns and rows for everything. We can we can store trees. We can store parent-child relationships, hierarchies. We can store complexity. You know, Jason um, is still my favorite uh, for designing data standards. Ah! <laughs> I know, I know. Jason Schema, that was my favorite. Unless something new comes uh, along that's better. But... What I'm trying to say is that we can design this complexity in, and we can we can even validate the data in in situ in its in its um, in its that form. We don't have to translate it to a database. Many, many people are still thinking, "Oh, I have to create a database," and that's not true. I mean, you can still create really awful schemas, but of course, what we try and do is create really great schemas that are extensible and flexible, validatable. Don't that's the word, um, and mm -hmm. uh, you know, can most importantly you can manage change because yeah. that's the other thing people don't take into account in data is always change. Every time you need to change your relational database, it'd be like a ritual, right? You've got to get your candles, get your chicken. Oh, yeah. Sacrifice your, bowl, your goat. Right? Yeah. yeah. Sacrifice your goat. Make sure it's the right, it's the right phase of the moon uh, because you know it's going to be painful, right? So, you know, building in the fact that we're going to have to manage change into a process, uh, into a database, and into the process of managing the data is extremely important because you know things fall we, apart when you can't manage change. But we also all have to sit around and chant shard, shard, <laughs> shard, right? Uh, so, so okay. So we got a Rachel. You should ask the question that we ask every time. Uh, well, I, I first I have another question, but I know you want to get to this. Um, and I think it's related to what I want to ask. <clears throat> so a lot of what you do, it sounds like, is you you don't necessarily have to convince people of things, although I'm sure that's part of the job. Uh, like, it's important to think about things this way. Here's my experience. Like, how do you, would you say that's a big part of your job? That the, the like, you've had all of this individual contributor experience, so you, can, you bring your experience with a lot of different kinds of data, mm -hmm. lots of the different technologies and platforms you use. You know, do people want to use Splunk? Do they want to use something else? Are they, you know, that kind of stuff. But have you had situations where that was a really difficult path to travel and, and how did you get through that? I mean, that's a constant thing. It's always a difficult path because you're, people want to move quickly. Once they have a problem, people want to solutionize as quickly as possible mm -hmm. and then once you get into the stage so i love the um uh the forming norming performing tuckman's mm -hmm. model I, I put that up a lot because people don't tend to remember the things go through stages um instead they think i'm going to do something we're, we're doing it let's get it, get on with it let's take some action and then you're, you're doing things right so you feel like you're being productive stepping back and going hey maybe we should think about this a little bit more 
but also maybe do some actions to prove not I'm not saying just sit back and, and cogitate I'm saying we we think about what we're doing and we test our assumptions proof of right? concepts yeah <laughs> we test our assumptions to make sure but um people don't necessarily want to do that and I found that a lot of people sometimes manufacture urgency when there's no urgency in in making a decision and that can be mm-hmm. you know there's there's two types of decisions that you can make there's more but let's just say there's two and I like saying this too because there's a system one system two thinking from thinking fast and slow and I like to use this that analogy but there's it's more complicated than that but let, in reality you've got like a, the fast decision you need to make like right now like do I step onto the road or not you know you don't want to be kind of calling a conference and deciding while the car's bearing down on you so there's situations like that that you know organizations find themselves in they need to make an immediate decision but what I always say is that if you're going to do that then record your assumptions and record why you made that decision so that someone 10 years down the line coming to look at your technical debt doesn't go what the heck were you thinking yeah it's so much and even you might be that person 10 years going why did I do that um so we need to make a fast pragmatic decision let's make it Let's be aware of the technical debt and let's make sure that at some point we can revisit it to fix it, right? Revisit continuous improvement. Um, the other kind of decision you don't have to make quickly. So like your system too, it's rational. You can go to spend the time. You can do some, uh, you know, prototyping. You can go and talk to some people, look at some case studies, whatever. You can make a, a, a decision that way. It doesn't mean you'll make the best decision. In, in the method doesn't mean you'll make the best decision, but it, hopefully if you uncover more things about the and understand the problem space you're more likely to get a, a good outcome yeah, context right? is for kings yes okay and queens, so as of part of this so as part of this you 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 you, you say you, you're still an individual contributor so the the um the leadership that you uh have is more or that you engage in is more about influencing other people mm-hmm. uh but you have authority because of your background because of all of the experience you've had and now because of the position you're in pretty mm. high up there so people listen to you i expect mo- as, more than they might be used to yes that's true. yeah yeah is is your relationship with authority i mean have you thought about that and how do you feel about having that kind of authority uh, and is it different than when you were younger uh and then how do you respond to people who have authority over you how do you feel about that um i'm very careful with authority um when I, I try and be mindful of what I say, um, I was at the meeting earlier and I realized I was I was railroading, you know, and I, they were still fine with me railroading them, but that wasn't going to be helpful because these are people that I want to take over or something, right? So I, I needed to, I had to take every breath, a step back and instead let them run the call, right? Rather than me doing that, because I have a tendency to to take over so i need to be very careful how i do that because at the end of the day i'm not looking for a command and conquer sort of mm-hmm. relationship with my with people i mean even not my directs i'm looking to remove barriers for them right and if they find that they've done something that's not the best way to do it then that's a lesson learned they're going to take that lesson much better than if i were to say to them don't do that that's going to be the wrong way. You know, it's just going to be me dictating. There's no learning there for them. There's no development. And for me, I'm my my purpose, I, I always have to remind myself, my purpose is to develop the next leaders, you know, in wherever I'm working or, you know, whether, 
even not when I'm not working, I, I mentor people outside of my organization. And that means sometimes knowing the answer, but not giving the answer. But letting right? them come to it. Yeah, yeah. That's right. definitely super so, useful. That's been a big part of my learning. As for the other way around, I'm more sympathetic now. I'm more uh, <laughs> oh, now yeah. that now that I'm near the top of the mountain, I can see why you we like, have I the see. dark clouds. I'm like, okay, I can see why you're making this decision. I still mm-hmm. prefer to have more information, like being formed. I don't like to be told a decision's been made. I like to be told decision been made, and these are the reasons that we made the decision because. It's not for me to challenge it. It's so that I have context, right? That way I know. And also if I'm talking to someone else and they say, hey, that was terrible. I could say, hey, okay, maybe from down down there on the foothills, you might think it's terrible. But actually- I feel you. Yeah. Or, or this was the best decision at the time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I don't like to lie. You know, if I don't think it was a good decision, I'm not going to lie. But I might say, I understand mm-hmm. the reasons why we made the decision and, and I'd be, I'll be upfront about that. So that's something that I- well, appreciate more the analogy is amusing to me because it's like uh you know in that analogy we're on top of the mountain and you know everybody on the bottom of the mountain saying why are you throwing rocks down on us we're literally dying and on top of the mountain they're like well we we can't build this house unless we clear out the foundation or level the top of the mountain or whatever it is (laughs) and and it is funny that uh uh, you might not always understand at the bottom. It might be painful at the bottom. And it doesn't mean there's not reason. I'm not saying it's the right decision. You know, mm-hmm. it's not necessarily the right decision. But there was a reason for why the decision was made. I think that yeah. that's yeah. accurate. And, I and there's found... also the, um, the the being kind of the conduit, right? Mm-hmm. 100%. Between yeah. senior leadership and junior leadership. Because at some point, you got to say, hey, so you're throwing these things, it's really causing a problem here. Maybe there's a better way of doing it. And maybe we can have a, a discussion because, you know, you get to a point when you're so senior, you don't necessarily have the time in an eight hour day. If you're working eight hours, it's like 10 or 15. Some people might be working <laughs> to, to really do the listening tour. Right. So you rely on yeah, people or... intermediaries to help you understand what's happening around the organization. Well, you, you don't even necessarily remember to turn around and look down the mountain and yell, you know, heads up, rocks yeah, are coming. Like focused you know? on yeah. uh, the goal, right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. Right. Whereas, well, so... whereas my position is that I can see both. I can see both sides. I mean, you know, I'm not so senior that I can't see people. People are comfortable to talk to me. They'll come and talk to me, mm-hmm. and they'll they'll talk to me about things yeah. that, and because I'm an individual contributor and I'm not line managing anyone. They can talk to me if they have a problem with their line manager who's the same level as me. And I can go and have a, a chat and try and under, help them unfix, you know, help them unfix, fix the situation. Um, un, un, I think you mean un-stick. unfuck the situation. I, I didn't want to swear, but yes. That We're allowed, exactly but. <laughs> That's exactly so, so let's pivot for time's sake because I'll have sure. to wrap up here shortly. But Damn uh, it. We us... never have enough time. Well, there's always, there's, there's always, there are always interesting people. Uh, how dare you how dare you be with just a few exceptions and i think we all know who i'm talking about but no um Adafi, the like, outside of work what what keeps you busy talk about your hobbies and and when you when you're not doing i imagine when you're not at work doing data what you're doing is walking around your house cataloging everything tagging it and then do you have a spreadsheet yeah. <laughs> only only when i moved house i had an air table to track 
all my purchases. And then I start to see the number going <laughs> up. I decided for the sake of my sanity to just ignore it. Um, yes. <laughs> so I don't have, I do no longer have that. So my hobbies right now are uh, cat wrangling because I have one cat. Mm -hmm. His name is Fergus. And uh, despite the fact that we ju just built him a very expensive catio, he's still not the most satisfied boy in the world. He always seems to have something to complain about. And, Isn't like, that how cats are? Isn't <laughs> no. that how cats are? They're I built for complaining, a... not satisfaction. I built him a climbing wall so he could climb. He's got a desert thing with cacti for him to scratch. He's got his outdoor space so he can walk all but the way somehow... to the so, no, yeah. it's still there's still something, mother. There's something that I I don't know. I yearn, and I go, "What do you yearn for?" I don't know. I just I, I just, just... Yearn. You know, <laughs> it's usually chicken related. It's a chicken problem. So that's that's my first thing. And second thing is I'm doing at my house, as you can see behind me. This is my Mondrian inspired study. Oh, yeah, uh, lots of colors. Very orange and gold. Yeah, I like it. The orange is called Nigerian Sands, if you ever want to, because oh, I'm Nigerian, beautiful. so I wanted the Nigerian colors. Um, so here is Nigerian Sands behind me, and uh, we're still doing our garden. We're in week 14 of five. Um, <laughs> Classic project. <laughs> yes. Uh, I, You know, I just like, you guys live here As a now. day person, I feel like you should hear the, the dissonance there, and you just glossed right over it like this yeah. was normal. At some point, this, this will be finished and I won't see those people and I have my keys to my garage back, but I don't know when that that is. We have no idea. It's supposed <laughs> oh, to be finished oh, yeah. this week. I looked outside, no one turned up today and I was like, nah, I'll be back tomorrow probably. Maybe. Yeah, Who knows? contractors. That's how it works. Yeah. I'm just, I, I'm just universal experience. Just give up and just let them go with their own schedule. I mean, this is this True. surpasses any any project. I'm not no, I'm not unhappy with the work they've done. The work they've done is fabulous, but the speed just wow. very slow. Yeah. So slow. <laughs> <sighs> Deep breath, uh, though. I can comfort, tell you're being patient about speed it. Enough, eh? uh, <laughs> that's right. So uh, well, we need to wrap up here, but thank you so much for coming. Um, this was great. And uh, yeah, yeah. I really appreciate you plumbing some of the depths of the specific data problems. Go ahead, Rich. And if, if people want to find you on the internet to oh, talk yeah. about gardening or cats or data, uh, where can they find you? I'm mostly on LinkedIn. Uh, my okay. uh, handle is E-K-O-N-E-R, Econa. Um, I'm also on, t on sorry, twi not Twitter, X. But Twit I don't X. X. I don't X very much <laughs> these days. Um, so it, don't X me. Uh, LinkedIn me. Uh, that's that's a much better place to find me. Seems a good idea. I will put that. I'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I, once again, I wish we had more time to talk about your experiences because you've had a lot of them, and uh, I um, I really would love to know more about everything, as usual. Uh, so thank you and good luck with your garden <laughs> thank you I'll let you know when it's done maybe week 20 of 5 you'll be completed Ooh. I won't even be in the country at that point I'll be I'll be in Montreal so it'll be interesting they finish it and I'm like cool <laughs> I'll, I'll look at it when I get back <laughs> yeah <laughs>